Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working Radio Show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is entitled, When You Pray. If you're anything like the disciples, prayer isn't the easiest thing for you. In fact, difficulty with prayer has been the common lot of Christians for the last 2,000 years, as it was for God's Old Testament saints before that. Simply stated, we have difficulty talking to God, for that's what prayer is. We often feel that God isn't listening, or if He is, we don't understand why He chooses not to answer, or at least not to answer how and when it seems obvious to us He should. What purpose is served by such enigmatic behavior by the God who has given His Son to save us? All these issues and more are what Jesus is addressing when He gives us the Lord's Prayer. He isn't just giving us a rote prayer or a pattern for prayer, though He is doing both of those. He is addressing all of our difficulties with prayer. On the front end, Jesus sets before us three seminal truths about God which serve as the basis of everything in the Lord's Prayer. For that matter, they serve as the basis for everything in the Sermon on the Mount, and indeed for everything in the New Testament. Those three truths are, God is King, God is Father, and God is ours. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus doesn't just tell us these truths, He puts them in our mouths. As we pray them, we also confess them. And as we confess them, we also learn them. And as we do all three, God transforms us and the world. I hope this sermon helps you in your prayers and in your understanding of the Father to whom Jesus brings us and tells us to pray. As we turn once again to where Jesus always pointed the disciples when it came to talking to the Father, and that is to this little prayer, less than 70 words long, which the church has honored with the title, The Lord's Prayer. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This morning as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, and specifically in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to verses 7 through 9 of Matthew chapter 6. We're right now at the very heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verses 7 through 9, this is where Jesus is leading into the Lord's Prayer. And we will consider down through the first half of verse 9. So this is the Word of God. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven. Let's pray. God and Father, we ask that You would add Your blessing to the consideration of Your Word, that You would bring it forth to us by the Holy Spirit, showing Your great power of Your kingdom. Let it fill us up in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. To Your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, in this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching the disciples about how to practice their righteousness. Now, practicing righteousness is a strange phrase for us. It sounds very formal, kind of formalistic, maybe sounds like works religion. 
But actually, practicing righteousness is simply Hebrew for walking with God and living out the faith. That's what practicing righteousness means. You remember that Jesus, near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, told His disciples to let their light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what practicing righteousness is. It's simply living out the faith as you walk with God and bear testimony to Him. So in the midst of this subject of how we walk with God and live out the faith, Jesus takes up the issue of prayer and he teaches his disciples how to do it. Now, that right there ought to get our attention because praying is something that you would think that they would know how to do. I mean, what could be more simple than praying to God? And they had the whole book of Psalms as example prayers inspired by the Holy Spirit to give them uh, example. And yet praying to God is something that the disciples had difficult with, as is evidenced by Jesus' instruction here. If they didn't have a problem with it, if they didn't need to have instruction, he wouldn't be taking up the topic. And this problem they had with prayer is further evidenced by the fact that later on in Jesus' ministry, the disciples will witness Jesus praying and then ask him specifically to teach them to pray. You can read about that in Luke chapter 11. So after all this time of walking with Jesus day after day, being able to see him, being able to hear him, being able to touch him, the disciples still feel the need to learn to pray. And it is significant that Jesus, on that occasion, teaches them how to pray by taking them right back to where we are today, to the Lord's Prayer, which he teaches them for the first time here in the Sermon on the Mount. So notice this progression. First of all, the disciples know how to pray. Right? They know how to pray in one sense. And yet, they really still need to learn how to pray. Jesus addresses their need by teaching them the Lord's Prayer and giving them the instruction that goes along with it. Then, after walking with Jesus for quite some time, the disciples still feel the need to learn how to pray. And Jesus, again, teaches them how to pray. And He does so by taking them back to what He has already taught them And that is the Lord's Prayer. Now, I want to ask you, have you recognized this pattern in your own life? Have you recognized this pattern in your own life? Do you know how to pray in one sense and yet in another sense feel like you need to be taught how to pray? Have you known the Lord's Prayer for many years? And yet feel like maybe you need to learn it again. Maybe there's something there that you miss out on. Well, let me just say that if you have no problems with prayer, if prayer comes easy to you and your prayer life is exactly where it needs to be, then you don't need the sermon. You also don't need the Lord's Prayer or the other instructions that Jesus gives about prayer. If you have no problems with prayer, then you're not like the disciples the ones who could actually see and hear and touch Jesus and who walked with him day by day for three years. And you're also not like all the believers who have lived during the last two millennia of church history. For it has been the common lot of Christians for the last 2,000 years that they have difficulty doing this simple thing 
called prayer. I think most of us can identify with the disciples because the fact of the matter is we have a hard time with prayer. Now, I don't mean we have a hard time with the concept. We have a hard time doing it. Like the disciples, we all know the Lord's Prayer. But like the disciples, we still need to learn how to pray. And like the disciples, we need to let Jesus take us back to where he took them back to. And that is to the Lord's Prayer. And so as we turn to the Lord's Prayer and the instruction that Jesus gives with it, I think it would be helpful to think about the nature of our problem. Why do we have a problem with prayer? Well, maybe we should ask, what is prayer? What is prayer? Well, prayer is simply talking to God, right? We can praise Him. We can thank Him. We can petition Him. We can confess to Him. But all of that is simply talking to God, is it not? So I think it is helpful to call our problem what it is. We have a problem talking to God. Talking to God is hard for us. And we need to ask why. Well, why is it hard to talk to anyone? Why is it easy to talk to some people and hard to talk to others? If you think about it, it always comes down to certain basic factors. Who is this other person? And who are we? And what is our relationship together with them? And do we understand what is going on in our relationship with them? And do we accept what is going on in our relationship with them? It all boils down to relationship. The other person can be high above us in terms of their position, or can they can be down beneath us in terms of their position. It could be a small child. They could be on the same level as us. But if we know who they are, if we have a good personal relationship with them, if we understand and accept what is going on, it will be easy for us to talk to them. Even so, our ease or difficulty in talking to God stems from these same things. Now, just think about it. What are our common difficulties in talking to God? One, we feel like he isn't listening. We feel like he isn't listening. We feel like He doesn't care. We feel like He doesn't have the power to do what we ask, perhaps. We don't understand why He isn't answering. Or we don't understand why He, isn't answer, why he is answering the way He is. We don't understand what's going on. Or we don't accept what is going on. All of those things relate to these fundamentals of who is God, what is our relationship with Him, what is going on, what is He doing, and do we get it and accept it? Now, these are the things that Jesus is really speaking to in the Lord's Prayer and the instructions He gives with it. Now, let's look at how Jesus addresses these issues. But as we do so, keep in mind that there is a difference between what is true and our perception of what is true. And there is also a difference between what is true and our attitude toward what is true. What is true is true, but our experience and our prayers to God will be governed by our perceptions and our attitudes toward what is true, not necessarily what is in fact true. And the way that Jesus 
deals with us here is he is changing our perceptions to align with the truth and he's changing our attitudes to embrace the truth. And the way that Jesus answers our problems in the Lord's Prayer is to point away from the way we feel, whether it's because of a bad attitude that we may have or whether it's because of a wrong perception we may have. Jesus is, in essence, saying to us, it doesn't matter how you feel. I'm going to tell you what is true. And I'm going to tell you how to change your perception to line up with what is true and how to change your attitude to embrace what is true. Because in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus doesn't simply tell us the truth. Jesus puts the truth in our mouths. The Lord's Prayer, you see, is not only a prayer. It is also a catechism and a confession of the truth. As we pray the Lord's Prayer or pray consistent with the Lord's Prayer, we are also confessing the truth. And as we pray the truth and confess the truth, God uses this to change the world and to change us at the same time. This is all by the design and the power of the God to whom we pray. Now, the first thing Jesus teaches us and the first thing he teaches us to pray concern the same thing. And that is the kingship and the fatherhood of God. The first thing that Jesus teaches us and the first thing that he teaches us to pray concern the kingship and the fatherhood of God. Jesus teaches us in verse 7 and 8, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And the first thing that Jesus teaches us to pray is in verse 9. The first words that we pray. Our Father in heaven. Now, Jesus is teaching us and placing in our mouths three seminal truths from which all the other truths and petitions in the Lord's Prayer stem. One, God is King. Two, God is Father. Three, God is ours. God is King. God is Father. God is ours. That's the bedrock from which everything else in the Lord's Prayer flows. And therefore, that is bedrock to us uh, learning to pray. Let's look at these truths. God is King. Now, this is what is captured by the words in heaven. That's another that's a Hebrew way of, of saying our father, the king, our father in heaven. It affirms God is the sovereign Lord of the universe, because biblically heaven is like the royal palace in a kingdom. It is the place from where the king rules, and it's not from where he rules just the palace. It's where he rules the entire realm. And so we have to adjust our thinking at this point as modern evangelicals. Because in the modern evangelical church, heaven connotes to us distance, doesn't it? If you think of heaven, don't you think far, far away? God in heaven represents God being very, very distant. God is in heaven. Does He know what's going on with me? Does He care what's going on with me? Is He connected with what's going on here in the earth? Heaven is the place that we hope to escape to, right? 
from this earth. And so heaven connotes distance and perhaps a disconnectedness. But in the Bible, heaven is quite the opposite. Heaven in the Bible, although it is a different realm or a different dimension, if you will, it is always represented as being infinitely near. Infinitely near. Think of Jacob when he left his father and his mother, was traveling across the desert, and he stayed uh, at Bethel in the, in the middle of the desert. Well, that's what he named it. He named it Bethel. Actually, it's just a bunch of sand and scrub brush and a rock that he put his head on and went to sleep. How he slept with his head on a rock, I don't know, but he did. And God came to him in a dream, and Jacob saw a great connection between heaven and earth. He saw angels of God ascending and descending between the heavens and the earth, and We know from the New Testament, Jesus tells us what was really going on here because Jesus says to Nathanael, he says, um, you're going to see the Son of Man with the angels of God ascending and descending upon him. Jesus is Jacob's ladder. And so, but anyway, when Jacob wakes up the next morning, he says, God is in this place and I didn't know it. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This sand, this scrub brush, this rock, here I am in the middle of the desert thinking I'm as far away from God as I can possibly be. And this is the very gate of heaven. This is the house of God because God is in this place and I did not know it. And so heaven is infinitely near in the Bible. And to say that God is in heaven is to say that God is near and that he is the king of the earth and everything in it. Think about Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at the time, uh, in the most uh, glorious city on the face of the earth at the time. He was proud and God humbled him. God took away his sanity for a period of seven years, made him eat grass like an ox. His, his fingernails grew like bird claws. His, hairs, uh, his hair grew out. He was completely humbled. And then God restored to him his sanity. And what does Nebuchadnezzar confess? He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor who? The king of heaven. Who has reached into Nebuchadnezzar's life and humbled him in this way. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, Those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will, not only in the army of heaven, but among the inhabitants of the earth. And there is no one who can stay his hand or put him in the dock, put him in the courtroom and say, explain yourself. This is what Nebuchadnezzar confesses. This confession is what we're saying when we say our Father in heaven. He is this one who is infinitely near, who is all-powerful, all of whose works are truth and justice, and who is able to put down those who walk in pride. Now, the next great truth is that God is our Father. 
And this, of course, emphasizes the love of God in adopting us as his sons through Christ. Now, this is where a lot of our problems in prayer, in talking to God, come from. It's leftover residue from the fact that formerly we were estranged from God. Formerly we were not members of his family. Formerly we were alienated from God because of our sin. Not only that, but the Bible says that we had enmity toward God, which basically means we don't like him. We don't like him. Uh, and we don't want to be close to him and we don't want him telling us what to do or otherwise interfering in our lives unless we need something. And then we'll call him at that time. It also says that we were his enemies. Now, Christ died to change all that. Christ died to take those who hated God, who wanted him dead, who were his enemies, to transform their hearts and to bring them to God to take those of us who were basically who had mutinied against God and therefore deserved the death penalty and to actually adopt us as sons and daughters into his royal family. This is what Jesus, the royal son, came to do. And when we say father, this is what we're saying. Now, to call God king would not have... uh, been uh, controversial to the disciples because as good Jews, they had a very high view of God and of his kingship and of his sovereignty. But to call God father was earth shaking. It was revolutionary. The Jews had such a high and exalted view of God that they would not say his name. Now, his name appears many times in the Hebrew Old Testament, the name uh, Jehovah or Yahweh. That's our transliteration of it. But the Jews would not say it. They substituted the word Lord, which is why, by the way, that we still in our English New Testaments, when you see Lord in all caps, what it actually says in Hebrew is Jehovah or Yahweh says his name. But we carried forth the Jewish tradition of not actually speaking God's name. And so to take the one who is so exalted and so much higher than us that they would not even say his name and to call him father was really revolutionary. Now, do you realize, of course, Matthew opens the New Testament. Do you realize that in the Sermon on the Mount is the very first time in all the New Testament that God is called father, that he's called our father? Again, I pointed out earlier in Matthew 5.16, near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains, he says, you need to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's a revolutionary concept. Then in in chapter 5, verse 45, he says, Uh, He's telling them how they are to forgive their enemies and love their enemies and these kind of things. He says that you may be sons of your father. Now he's driving it home even further. He's not just calling him father. Now he's making explicit what has already been implied that you may be sons of the father. And then in verse 48 of chapter five, he says that you are to be perfect as your father. What's the job of a son? To be like the Father. To grow up to be like the Father. That means following our Lord Jesus' footsteps. 
means being conformed to his image as the perfect son. So the fatherhood of God is really the foundation of everything that Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And this was earth shaking to the disciples. Our father, the king. That's basically what we're saying when we say our father in heaven. And it's the reality of both these things. God is king and God is our father that drives the Lord's prayer. It drives the Sermon on the Mount. Indeed, it drives the entire New Testament. That's what being saved means. It doesn't just mean having your sins forgiven. That's the start. That's the beginning. That's a necessary precondition to being saved. Having your sins dealt with and taken out of the way. What saved means, means you have been adopted and brought into the royal family. And you are a royal son or a royal daughter of your father, the king. All of that is what Jesus is putting in our mouths when we pray, our Father in heaven. And Jesus here is teaching us to speak like a son. He's teaching us to speak like a daughter. Like a royal son or daughter. That's why I think the Lord's Prayer is so brief. Jesus, in teaching us to pray, gives us a prayer that's barely more than 60 words long. But if God the King is our Father, then we would expect brevity. For that is what royal power and familial affection engender. We are our Father's children, and He has infinite knowledge and infinite power. So we don't need to engage in vain or empty repetition. We don't need to manipulate God. We don't need to cajole Him. We don't need to pester Him. We don't need to try to provoke Him into feeling sorry for us to win His attention or to win His favor. That's the way the pagan prayers used to be because they had a fundamentally different view of God. If you look at the Greek or the Roman culture, their view of God was basically sinful people writ large. You remember the old shows like Dallas and Dynasty and all those shows of the super rich, super powerful people and all the capricious things they were doing? That's basically the Greek gods. Just add a few notches to it. That's basically the Greek gods. And so what are you going to do to get some god like that who's just as bad as you are, just as capricious as you are, just as selfish as you are, how are you going to get them to pay attention to you uh, and pay attention to you in a good way? You know, you're not sure if you want them to pay attention to you or not because they may pay attention to you for evil. But you need to get them to pay attention to you, to not do evil things to you, and to do good things to you. So what do you need to do? You need to manipulate them. You need to bribe them. You need to cajole them and pester them. You need to flatter them. You need to have long, flowery prayers, which is what the pagans used to have in order to flatter to God to get them to do what you wanted. Or you needed to, if you were going to fast, you needed to make yourself look pitiful and pathetic to make them feel sorry for you, like a little child will after their father or mother has disciplined them. You ever see a little child go and get in the corner and look pitiful? What's that? That's manipulation. Make you feel sorry 
for what you just did to me. Right? And that's the way that people would fast, even within the Jewish community, which is why Jesus says, don't do that. He says, you dress up. You wash your face. You comb your hair. When you fast. Because it's not about pity party. It's not about sadness. It's not about manipulation. It's about simply sincerity toward God, humility before God in prayer. That's what it's about. It has nothing to do with manipulation. Coming directly into the king's presence and speaking respectfully and confidently to the point is what you would expect from the king's own children, isn't it? And when we speak to our Father, the King, in the way Jesus intended, the truth Jesus places in our mouths begins to change not only the world as God answers our petitions, but also to change our hearts and our attitudes and our perceptions as we pray and confess the truth. God is changing us in a royal direction. Because if He is Father, then we are royal children. And as we speak with our Father, the King, in the royal language that Jesus has given us, our whole way of thinking and our, and our whole way of being begins to take on a royal task. Now, this helps us then understand what is going on. You remember, that's, that's one of the things that uh, makes it hard for us to speak to somebody or hard for us to speak for God. We have to know who He is. He's the king. He's our father. We have to know what our relationship is. It's a father-child relationship. We have to understand what's going on. Why does he seem not to answer us? Indeed, why do we have to pray at all? Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you pray. Now, Jesus gives that as the reason for not praying long, flowery prayers with vain repetition. But, you know, it kind of begs the question, well, Jesus, while you're at it, why should we pray at all? You just said the Father knows everything we need. Why doesn't He just do it for us? Why do we have to pray at all? The answer is relationship. Relationship. Jesus is the incarnate man, the God-man of God the Son. Why should He need to pray to the Father? But He does. Well, it's because He is a Son. And it is about relationship. If God just does everything for us without us needing to ask, then where is the relationship, I ask you? You see, it's for us that we pray. It's for us that God wants us to speak to Him and to pray according to His will and according to our good. This is part of what it means to be a Son and to grow up. We can see God using this pattern throughout Scripture, and this will help us to understand what is going on when it seems like God is not answering our prayer. Or what is going on when God answers our prayer in a way that we don't like? What is going on? Do we understand what is going on? Is it according to our good? Can we embrace it? Well, we see God doing this with a number of people throughout Scripture, but I will point out three. Abraham, Moses, and the disciples themselves. Abraham, Moses, and Jesus' disciples. Well, Abraham is called the father of all believers in Romans 4. And we're told that the end result 
of the relationship that God developed with Abraham was that Abraham was called the friend of God. James 2. The friend of God. The father of all believers. Which suggests, since he's our example, the father of all believers, that we're supposed to walk the same path. We're supposed to come to be called friends of God. Which is exactly, as we're going to see in a minute, what Jesus called his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. Now, you remember with Abraham, remember the episode when God set out to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, shall I do this thing and keep it from Abraham? Shall I shield it from him? No, he goes and he lays out to Abraham what he's planning to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And a long conversation ensues. Abraham knows that his nephew Lot is there and his family. And so Abraham asked God, he said, would you destroy the, the righteous with the wicked? And then he begins to ask God, well, what if there are a hundred righteous or fifty righteous? Would you destroy the, the city? And God keeps saying, no, I will then preserve the city for the sake of the righteous. And Abraham gets it all the way down to ten. If there's just ten righteous, God says that he will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Now, this is an interesting consultation. Who is growing here? Is God growing? Is God changing his will based on what Abraham is saying? Is God learning? Is he developing? Is this process theology? No, it's Abraham who's growing through this conversation. This was not a consultation in the sense that God didn't know what to do or he was insecure in his purposes. He needed Abraham to tip the balance one way or the other. It's not a consultation in that sense. God knows what's right. And God's going to do what's right. But it was a consultation in the sense that God regarded Abraham as a son and a friend, and therefore he wanted to bring Abraham in on his purposes and to hear Abraham's thoughts and petitions. And in this process, it is Abraham, not God, that is being illuminated. Abraham, in his petitions and reasonings with God, is really thinking God's thoughts after him and is articulating them in the form of petitions, and that's what prayer is. This is a lot of what we're supposed to do in prayer. So by being included, by being treated as God's son and friend, Abraham is growing in the likeness of God, which is to say he is growing in nobility. He's learning to think like God. He's learning to act like God. He's learning to be a royal son. And God, as a father, delights in this process. A lot of times, as fallen humans, we do not delight in the process. We want the process to be over. We want our kids to be grown. We want to be done with school. We want things to happen fast. One of the things we find with God is that even though he's perfect, he's not a perfectionist. And he loves the process. The second example I mentioned is Moses. We're told that God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Exodus chapter 33. And we have an example of this in the immediate preceding chapter, Exodus 32, which is the famous golden calf incident. After the people had turned away from God and worshipped the golden calf, 
Uh, Moses comes back up on the mountain and God says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And I will make of you a great nation, Moses. I'm going to wipe all these people out. I'll make you a great nation. And then Moses pleads with God and says, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore. And then Moses goes on to say, if you will not forgive their sin, then blot me out of your book. So far from saying, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. God, wipe them out. They're all losers anyway. I agree with you. I mean, Moses was hot over this. He didn't think it was a small thing. He was burning hot with what the, uh, the children of Israel had done. But he doesn't say, yeah, wipe them out and you make a new nation of me. That's not what he says. He says the opposite. If you won't forgive their sins and blot me out of your book. Now, once again, it's easy... This, I think it's passages like this a lot of time that we come up with this idea that the God of the Old Testament was just having a perpetually bad day. You know, he was just angry all the time, cross all the time, impatient all the time. And then the nice God shows up in the New Testament. But that's not what's going on. You see, it's not God who is growing here. It's not God who is changing here. It is Moses. We see in Moses the mind of Christ. You know, God could blot Moses out of his book, but it wouldn't save anybody. God blotted Jesus out of his book and saved the world. Jesus is the one who said, I will go to the cross. I will die for their sin. You blot me out. You give me what they deserved. And this is how God saved us and how he is saving the world. And so we see in Moses here the mind of Christ. And don't forget the fact that in Romans, I mean, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us who was it who was speaking to Moses on the mountain. You also they see this in Hebrews 12. It wasn't just God in some generic way. It was God the Son. It was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ who was on the mountain with Moses. He is the one there teaching Moses how to be like him. How to have the mind of Christ, which is what Paul commands us to have in Philippians chapter 2. And we see Jesus doing something very similar with the disciples near the end of his ministry. He calls them in John chapter 15, friends. And he explains the difference between a servant and a friend. It's not like a servant is dirt. And a friend is, is treated nicely. That's not the biblical difference between a servant and a friend. The difference, Jesus says, is that the servant doesn't know really what's going on. The servant doesn't know the big picture. He's not brought in to the counsel of the head. Whereas a friend is. A friend is brought in, seated at the table, seated in the throne room, seated in the council room where the king uh, operates and makes his decisions. So Jesus says, you are my friends, 
Uh, all, I don't call you servants anymore, but now I call you friends for all things that I've heard from my father. I've made known to you. You've been brought into the inner chamber. You've been seated at the king's uh, council table. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is no longer in authority over them. That's not what friendship means either. Friendship does not mean an egalitarian relationship. In fact, Jesus explains to them in John 15:12, "You are my friends if you do whatever I command you." He's still the Lord, but they are friends of the royal court. The king's friends sit at the king's table. They enjoy his food and his communion, and they sit on his royal council. That is what we were created for. And that is what Jesus died to redeem us for. So if we understand these things, what it really means to say that God is king and God is our father, that we are his children and he is growing us up to be all that that means as royal children, then we can begin to see and understand this process. We can begin to understand why God makes it seem like at different times that he's not listening, that he's not there, or that he's not going to answer our prayer, or he's not going to answer it the way we want. Because he's concerned about what's going on in us. And this process requires that we develop and mature in our faith, in our hope, and in our love. And we can then begin to make sense of the fact that Jesus here in our text tells us don't engage in vain repetitions. And yet later on in his ministry, he will tell the disciples, persist in prayer. Well, how do you persist in prayer and not engage in vain repetition? If you persist, aren't you repeating? Doesn't persisting mean praying the same prayer? Isn't that vain repetition? Well, no, it's not. Persisting in prayer is a matter of faith. Empty repetition is a matter of unbelief. Empty repetition is something intended to manipulate God, to twist His arm. Jesus gives a parable later on about the wicked judge. And the whole point of this parable is for Jesus to teach His disciples to persist in prayer. And He says there was once a wicked judge and He didn't care about anybody. And there was this lowly widow who was not receiving justice. And so she came into his court, but he didn't want to be bothered with her. But she kept coming back, coming back, and coming back. And finally, even this wicked judge said, look, I'm going to give this widow what she wants because she's going to drive me crazy. She's going to drive me insane. Now, we then, Jesus adds on to that. He says, therefore, you ought always to pray and not give up. And so we tend to make the wrong conclusion and go, oh, God is like that wicked judge. We have to pester him into doing what we want or what we need. No, Jesus' point is that God is not like that judge. He's not like the wicked judge. God is your Father who knows what you need before you even pray, but wants to hear it from you, his son or his daughter. And so you see, the vain repetition thing is a matter of manipulation. That is unbelief. Persistence in prayer, maintaining faith, coming back to God in prayer and in faith, 
That's persistence, and that is what belief does. God wants us to persist, not for His sake, but for our sake. If you're a parent, I bet you want to see your children learn to bear up, don't you? Don't you want to see your children grow up to learn to persist, to have stick to to bear up in faith and hope and perseverance in difficult circumstances? And why do you want that? Because you're a sadist? No, you want that for their sake because you know that is what causes them to grow up to be what God created them to be. Which is why you don't always make things easy for them, do you? Not if you're a good parent, you don't. Because you're concerned about them. And God is concerned about us in the same way. And this helps us to understand what in the world God is doing. Why things take time. We want things to hurry up to happen now. Why did God create time? He doesn't need it. Why does He stretch things out? Why does the God who exists in eternity and can have everything like that choose to stretch it all out? Because He loves the process. And we need to love it as well. All of this is what we're confessing when we come to God and we pray, our Father who art in heaven. So this week, as you pray, I would encourage you, one of the common things that we have with prayer Have you ever felt this way? You you think, I really need to go and pray. I need to spend some time in prayer. And then as you start thinking about praying, you start thinking about all the things that you need to pray about. And the the list is without end. And then all of a sudden you feel like there's this huge weight on you. And you just go, you just don't even start. Because it's like a mountain. And you just can't deal with it. Well, I think part of what Jesus is saying here is that you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to say everything that needs to be said to your father all at one time. He's your father. He knows. You can have a brief time of prayer with your father. Don't feel obligated to pray for everything in the world that needs to be prayed for. God doesn't lay that on you. Go and pray a short prayer about a few things that you know you need to lift up. And thank Him, and you're done. You have to learn to walk before you can run. And Jesus starts with a 60-something word prayer. And that's it. So just go pray and pray for a little bit. Or, if you feel extra burdened, most of you know the Lord's Prayer by memory. Why don't you just say the Lord's Prayer? Now that you're beginning to understand what it really means, think about who you're talking to. Just say the Lord's Prayer if you don't have time for anything else. Or just think it. Have you ever been too tired to actually pray out loud? And all you could really do is just kind of think a prayer? That's fine. God's not limited about whether we're voicing it or not. So this week, let us try to turn over a new leaf in prayer, which means praying more often, but praying shorter, deliberately shorter, brief, to the point. You don't have to convince Him. You don't have to manipulate Him. He knows what you need. He is your Father. He's bringing you along as a son or a daughter. 
So let us begin to have our prayer lives transformed in the way that Jesus intends. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.